We are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. Last week, Devin, after we had spent many weeks going through each of the Ten Commandments, Devin did a large block of, of passages, of chapters, um, just to keep a, a unified approach to our teaching. And this morning, we're going to be continuing that as we continue in a large block of passages. The book of the covenant has just been read to Israel and by Moses, and Israel has promised to do all that the Lord is requiring of them. But deep down, Israel knows they will never succeed. Because sin entered the world long ago and Israel, even up to this point, has proven time and again that they are sinners. Time and again. Long ago, God made a covenant with Israel that he would always be their God and they would always be his people. Months earlier, God saves Israel from slavery in Egypt to lead them to the promised land where they would serve God, where they would serve him and worship him, bringing him glory. For that, that is what Israel was created for. That is what we are created for. And God has led them now to this place called Mount Sinai, the place where he had promised in Exodus chapter 3 when talking to Moses at the burning bush, a place he promised that Israel would learn to serve and worship him. And after Moses finished reading the book of the covenant, God calls him back up on the mountain to tell them, to tell him of Israel's next step in their journey. And so he meets with Moses. And if you would turn with me to chapter 24, where Devin finished in verse 11, and we're going to continue on in verse 12. And we will be making our way all the way this morning from 24.12 to chapter 27 and verse 19. But we will not be reading all of the passage this morning. So look at verse 12 with me. As Moses has just finished reading the book of Covenant and the Lord has called him up to the mountain. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud, the cloud of God, covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now Moses wrote this, and that's important to remember how long he was on the mountaintop. Join with me in prayer. Father, we humbly bow before your word this morning. 
Lord, we acknowledge that these words are true and they are life and they are you speaking to us, your people. And as we read these words and as we listen to these words, Lord, we ask that you would bring insight and you would bring revelation to us that we might understand, that we might perceive that we might know you more. Lord, I pray that as these dear friends listen to this sermon and these passages this morning, that you would encourage them and refresh them and transform them by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to effectually teach your word for your glory and for the good of this church. In Christ's name, amen. After Moses finishes reading the book of Covenant, he is called up on the mountain, as we've just read, so that God can tell him, instruct him about Israel's next step in their journey. And so he meets with Moses in his glory. He meets with Moses in fire and a, and a cloud and a voice. And, and Israel at the, at the base of the mountain is, is hearing all of this. They're watching. They're seeing this, this fire and this cloud. And in the midst of all of this, God gives Moses instructions very detailed instructions, so important that he must remain on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights to take it all in because they are very specific instructions. And this next event in Israel's journey, this next event that we're about to, to learn, is one of the most important moments in their history. It's an event that we we need to consider carefully this morning because it is the building of the tabernacle beginning first with the instructions on how to build this tabernacle and the reasons why. So this morning we're going to read through, we're going to understand the instructions that God gives Moses to build this tabernacle and the reasons why God wants to do this. Now, two considerations this morning that we want to look at on why God builds a tabernacle. And the first one is going to look at the broad picture and then we're going to look at the finer details. So the first is we want to consider the broad picture and the broad picture is, is, is a question, is why were we created? And the big picture, if you read in Psalm 96, and this is just one of many psalms we could read this morning, the psalmist says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. Declare his marvelous works among the people. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Then all the trees of the forest shall sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. This is just one of many psalms that tell us why God has created us, why he has come to dwell with us, and why he has saved us. We've been created to worship God and glorify his name. 
It doesn't get more simple than that. We have been saved not primarily first for our own blessing, which would be a man-centered reason, but to restore us to a place, brothers and sisters, where we fulfill the purpose we were created for, which is to worship God because he deserves our worship. James Boyce describes worship because worship can seem we can, na- we can make that word very narrow. When we think of worship, we can think, yeah, that's where we come in here on Sunday morning and Devin plays a guitar and we sing and, and that's worship. And, and, then, and then we go home. That is not the extent of worship. That's, that is just a narrow view. James Boyce describes, James Boyce, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote many commentaries, wonderful teacher of God's word. He described worship in this way, and he was a worshiper of God, not just in singing, but throughout his life. He describes it this way. He says, expecting God to gain glory for himself through the praises of his people. He is expecting God to gain glory for himself. And we, we must rightly understand God's purpose for our lives to fully appreciate what we're about to see in Exodus 25 through 27. We will grasp it if we don't lose sight of what biblical worship is because that's why we are here. That's why we exist. Worshiping God as an unceasing activity. Before you arrived here and when you leave here, your worship continues. And, and it is why Devin and I again and again communicate that our worship doesn't stop when we stop singing. We are worshiping when we are giving in the offering. We are worshiping when we are, are sitting quietly and praying. We are worshiping. We are worshiping all throughout our lives. It is an unceasing activity. It's not limited to just being present here on Sunday morning. Our lives are always about worship, how we live and how we act and how we think and how we feel. That's daily worship. How we, how we approach life. That's the Ten Commandments covered that. That's a life of worship. And the building of the tabernacle we get into these instructions, is designed to do this. It's designed to restore the heart of worship that was ruined and lost in the garden. That's what the tabernacle is designed to do. It is, in a limited way, a recreation of what was so special about the Garden of Eden. God and man dwelling together. That's what, that's what the joy of the garden was. God and man dwelling together. And the detailed instructions about how to exactly build this tabernacle are, are more than just details about a, a building. They're about God fulfilling his covenant promise to always be near Israel by dwelling with them in the middle of their camp. And that's where the tabernacle existed in the middle of Israel's camp, surrounded by all 12 tribes. The, the tabernacle is the place where they were to fulfill God's purpose for their lives, to be restored when they sinned back to a place of fellowship so that they could be unceasing worshipers. And that God's glory would be made known through them. 
as the nations watched. Now Exodus 25, 1-9 begins this new stage in, their, in God's relationship with Israel by giving them their very first opportunity to worship. Look at chapter 25 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, purple, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Here is this first act of worship. Their first opportunity to worship. God instructs Moses on the heart of worship, on their willingness, their to give willingly of themselves of their possessions for God's glory. This is the beginning of their covenant worship, a voluntary and willing desire demonstrated by practical giving. A willingness to give reveals what's really going on inside their hearts as it does reveal what's going inside our hearts. Do do they desire to see God dwell among them? That's That's what's being asked here. Do they desire to see what God dwelling among them? Do they, do they want to give willingly? Not, not to a building, because look, it says here in, in verse 2, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me, not for a building, but for me, a contribution. God sees their giving for him. God God expects them to willingly obey. That's a part of their worship so that the tabernacle is built exactly as God instructs them. Look at verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. So God is part of their worship. It's not just giving materially. It's also obedience. So, that's the big picture. God is after a heart of worship. This tabernacle that exists, that is being, going to be built, the instructions given for this tabernacle is about God dwelling in the midst of the people of Israel and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's what this is about, that they might glorify God, that they may worship God that they may make God's name known so that he would receive the glory he deserves. That is the big picture. But next we need to consider the finer details. Why build the tabernacle? Now Exodus is a continuation of the Genesis story. The garden was the original sanctuary of God on earth where Adam and Eve met directly and personally with him until sin, their sin, entered the world. Eden, and because of their sin, Eden could no longer bear their presence. Sin barred the way 
into Eden for them. But now we begin to see God recreating a new sanctuary where he will meet with mankind. Not not face to face in the cool of the day, but in the most holy place through the sacrifice of shed blood and death. A life for a life where a mediator enters into God's holy presence, a place where the atonement for sin is, is made. It is what will be called the most holy place in the tabernacle where at the mercy seat where God and sinner meet. That is what this tabernacle, this sanctuary. And as God instructs Moses, again, he reveals to him why. It's because I want to dwell in your midst. I want to be among my people. He will be near the people of Israel in this, in this sanctuary. He will dwell in this area called the most holy place and he will meet with them there. Israel has experienced God's nearness since he led them out of Egypt. He's been with them in a cloud. He's been with them in a pillar of fire. They heard his voice from Mount Sinai. God has has drawn near. He's given them a mediator in Moses. But all of that was, was from a distant, a distant mountaintop. But now this tabernacle that is being created, it will exist in the heart It will be located in the heart of the Israelite community. And the building building of the tabernacle, my friends, is, is more than simply a matter of building a worship site in the desert. It's much more than that. It is a place of heaven on earth. This tabernacle is a restoration of God's desire to dwell with humanity that they might know him and glorify him in their lives, that he might be made known to the entire world. That's what this tabernacle, this whole setup is about. Now, the tabernacle details, as we see in in verse 9 here, the instructions are exact. They are detailed. And it might seem tedious and it might seem boring, but there there is rich theology in these verses that we cannot ignore. In chapters 25 through 31, they're, they're God's divine speech from, from, 20, from all the way from where we started to 2719. God is speaking to Moses and he's giving him instruction after instruction after instruction about the details of this place called the tabernacle. Even the order of God's instructions, each instruction he gives in a particular order are for a purpose. And yet, with all the detail given, there are going to be moments in here where we, we don't have all of the understanding reasons why God is doing what he's doing. There, there's some mystery to this. Like, like the lampstand. There's no explanation why there is a lampstand made of gold. Lampstands. There is no explanation really about the bread of presence on the table in the holy place. There's some mystery to this. I I find mystery. Why bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons? Why not cats and rats? I mean, what, what, why, why choose those things? But every detail is important because this is the word of God. 
This is the word of God. And even though you and I probably many times started our through the Bible in a year reading plan, and we got to this point, and it was like, and do this, and do this, and do this. And when we finally, we got to Leviticus, we just said, you know what, I'm just gonna do a chapter a month of something. But it's, I mean, we, we can get a little bit bogged down. We must carefully consider every word and every detail. So let's begin by looking at the layout of this place called the tabernacle and the courtyard that surrounds the tabernacle. And in his instructions, there's a purpose. God begins at the most important place, in the most holy place, and he begins instructions with the Ark of the Covenant. In verse, in verse 10 of chapter 25, we see that God begins inward and works his way outward. Now, let me give you an idea of, of the tabernacle. You've got You've got this thing, it's called the Ark. And this Ark is located in this place called the Holy of Ho most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And then, and that's the only place inside this, it's a 15 by 15 room. Right in there is this, this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And then you've got another place with a veil and then over here, you've got what's called the holy place. And there's three pieces of furniture. There's a table for the bread of the presence. There are the golden lampstands. And then there's an altar for the burning of incense. And then outside, and there's a, there's a veil that leads to the door outside into this courtyard. And then there's this courtyard. And this courtyard is a rather large courtyard. That, that's, the, that's the layout. And the ark, the ark is made of this stuff called acacia wood, and it's covered in pure gold, and it is called the Ark of the Covenant, and the, it's the only thing in the most holy place. So here you have this room. It's 15 feet by 15 feet, a perfect square, and the only thing that sits in this room is the Ark of the Covenant. That's all that's there. This beautiful thing called the Ark. God's first instruction was to build this ark, making it clear that this is his highest priority. And so he does. He starts from the inside out because it's the focus of God's presence. It's the central point of his contact between men and himself. It was an earthly symbol of heaven. And this ark that sits in this 15 by 15 room, the most holy place. It's about four feet long and about three feet wide and about two and a half feet tall. And it has, and it, it's, it's covered in pure gold. And it sits on four legs so that the corners would not touch the ground. There were poles that were attached to each side through rings, the poles that were to carry the ark because no one was ever allowed to touch the ark. And we can remember stories of Nadab and Abihu who touched the ark and died and Uzzah who touched the ark and died because it was holy. It was God's presence. And inside the ark was the testimony the Ten Commandments. The law was inside this ark. 
25.10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. And they give the size of it in verse 17, uh, verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. God's law, God's word resides inside this ark. But that's not all there is to the ark because on top of the ark is a lid called the atonement cover or the mercy seat resting on top. And this cover was of pure gold. And at each end of the cover were these representation of angels called cherubim. And they stood facing each other at the end of the ark with their wings spread, looking down at the ark. Not looking up towards God, but looking down at the ark. And above this cover, this mercy seat, it was between these cherubim, above these cherubim, that God's presence dwelled. And it's where God This room is where God would meet with his people, the high priest, once a year. Cherubim are angelic beings, and they represent represent heaven. They represent the presence of God. They they represent God's heavenly dwelling. They are angelic beings that live in God's presence. And the, the the atonement cover, this mercy seat, is where the high priest each year would come in once a year with the what Jewish folks would call the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He would come in and he would sprinkle blood on the atonement cover. On the mercy seat, The priest made atonement for the sins of the people. This cover stood. Now think, this cover, you've got this mercy seat cover. It's covered in blood. Beneath it is the law. And above it is God. The law that is clear, we can't keep. The law that reveals our inability, our our sin. The law that condemns us. And above you have God who is holy. And in between there is this blood on the mercy seat, on the atonement cover between God and man. As the high priest, the mediator, sprinkles that blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Philip Ryken said this about the mercy seat. He says, the more we get to know the Israelites, the more we see how completely they broke God's law. They were the kind of people who liked to serve other gods, worship idols they made with their own hands, forget the Sabbath, take things that didn't belong to them, and generally break the commandments of God. Therefore, what was in the ark could not save them. It could only condemn them. The law deposited in the ark condemned their sin, and God was right on top of it. This is why the lid to the ark was so important. Some modern translations call it the atonement cover. Other versions call it the mercy seat, a term first used by Martin Luther and then picked up by William Tyndale when he translated the Bible into English. The mercy seat was the place where mercy was found, the mercy of forgiveness for sin. We must not miss that truth. Above the mercy seat, God dwells in all his glory. Below in the ark is the law that condemns us. But there's this atonement cover. There's this mercy seat where blood is shed from sacrificial lambs and, and bulls and goats and where sin 
is atoned for. There's no mercy unless there's blood on the mercy seat. This is precisely what Jesus did on the cross. He offered himself as a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. He sacrificed his own blood to stand between God and us as a mediator that we might be forgiven. The cross of Christ is our mercy seat. And so you have in this 15 foot by 15 foot perfect square room called the most holy place, the ark, where God's presence dwells. And then at the entrance to the most holy place, you have this curtain called the veil. Remember the veil that was torn from top to bottom as Christ died on the cross? That veil stood between the most holy place and the holy place. A 15 by 30 foot room. And in that holy place, you had this table covered in gold. You had, it was, and that's where the bread of the presence. And there were 12 loaves of bread. And Leviticus 24, 6 it, it seems to be that those 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you've got this altar of, uh, covered in gold that burns incense before the Lord. And then you've got these golden lampstands that keep it lit. And the priests are to keep those lampstands lit 24-7. And in verse chapter 26, and if you look over in chapter 26, in verse 31... And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. This room, which was the holy place and then the most holy place, that's the tabernacle. That, that entire, these two rooms make the tabernacle. And these two rooms were made, were covered with the finest of linens. Purple, scarlet blue yarn, the finest of linens, all most likely plundered from the Egyptians when Israel left Egypt. And woven into each curtain and into the, the veil separating the most holy place from the holy place, this veil woven into those are the pictures of cherubim. Again, a representation of God's presence. These angelic beings. This tabernacle. This 15 foot wide by 45 feet long room. Separated where the ark dwells. And then these other furniture. This tabernacle is the place of God. And that's what Israel knows and will know. It is a sacred place. But listen, in the midst of a fallen world, in exile from the Garden of Eden, the original heaven on earth, God undertakes here 
an act of creation, a recreation, a building project that is nothing less than a return to, to the pre-fall splendor, the, the splendor of, of what was going on in the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle is laden. It's filled with redemptive significance. And not just because sacrifices and offerings were within its walls, but because of what it is. The tabernacle in the midst of a sinful people in a sinful world, the tabernacle was a piece of holy ground because God dwelled there. And that's the instructions God is giving Moses. A table, and he talks about the table for the bread made of acacia wood and covered in pure gold. The lampstands were solid gold, as was and the altar, the, the altar for incense was, was acacia wood covered in gold. And God gives these detailed instructions. And all of, the, all of the rings that held the curtain in the most holy place, they were of gold. And all of the, the, the rods that held up the curtains were acacia wood covered in gold. And then as you move to the, the holy place, you see that there's some, some silver and a few things of bronze the further you get away from God, the more common the material. So the meaning of the tabernacle is clear. God comes to live with his people. And as they make their way to the promised land, God says, you will not be alone. This tabernacle is where I will dwell. And what better way to show them than to dwell, to live in the middle of their camp. The tabernacle this tabernacle represented God. His desire to be with his people. Now we, we, see, we see the holiness of this, this ark. We see the holiness of the most holy place. We see the holiness of the holy place. We see the holiness of the, the tabernacle. And we're aware, we're aware of the separation between sinner and God. But don't lose sight that God made his way to men. If men, <clears throat> if Israel had tried to make their way to God on the mountain, if they tried to get to God at Mount Sinai, they would have died because God is holy. And so God comes to men and he comes in this tabernacle. And so there's this veil that separates the, the most holy place from the holy place. And then there's another veil without a cherubim woven into its, into its center that is between the, the holy place, the tabernacle, and the courtyard. Now there's this courtyard that surrounds this tabernacle, this 15 by 45 foot tent building. And this, this courtyard is 75 feet wide and 150 feet long. And it's in that courtyard where the people of Israel can come to a certain point. In the middle of the courtyard is this, this altar, a bronze altar. And this altar is seven feet approximately by seven feet. It's massive. It's about four and a half feet high. And it stands between 
the entrance to the courtyard, a 30-foot entrance where people would come in. And then there's this bronze altar. And then from the bronze altar, you walk towards the tabernacle, the the holy place, and right and before there is a wash basin that the, the priest would wash their hands from the sacrifices and the blood being spilt. And then there's the tabernacle. It's beautiful, fine linens. And then covered with, with the goat hair, the hides of goat hair, and covered with the, the hides of sea cows and rams to protect the tabernacle. But you've got this bronze altar in the middle of this courtyard, this altar of burnt offering. And in the center is, is this burnt offering, this altar that is burning day and night. Day and night as people come and they bring their, their offering to God. If they couldn't afford a lamb, they would bring a pigeon. If they couldn't afford a bull, they would bring a goat. But there's always being, being sacrifices offered on this altar, this, this burnt offering. They're, they're being put to death by the priests for the, for the sins of the people. But that's as close as they were allowed to get. Now the fire of the altar never went out because sin always had to be atoned for. Think about that. Day and night. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And do you know how long this went on? This went on for over a thousand years years. Think how much blood was shed. How many animals died. The stench and the bleeding of sheep. Over a thousand years. A.W. Pink in his commentary said this of the altar, the bronze altar. There it stood. Ever smoking ever blood-stained, ever open to any guilty Hebrew that might wish to approach it. For a thousand years, God's people had to be putting to death these animals to be cleansed. That's the instructions that God has given to Moses this is what you are to build so that I can dwell with my people. And it has to be portable. <laughs> you, you think you have it tough sometimes on Sunday, and I know how hard the guys who do set up and take down surf, but you don't have this. <laughs> and this, everything had to be done to exact specifications. One mistake, and someone died. The sound doesn't work on Sunday. Nobody's dying. (laughs) (laughs) Let me give you some final thoughts. Three truths about the tabernacle that I would want you to walk away with. Number one is this, about the tabernacle. God desires to dwell with his people. Secondly, sin separates people from God. And thirdly, God provides a way of reconciliation through sacrifice. 
That's what the tabernacle is about. God desires to dwell with his people. Sin separates people from God, and God provides a way of reconciliation through sacrifice. But here's humanity's problem. The tabernacle was temporary. Even though it went on for over a thousand years, the tabernacle was temporary. All these bulls and goats and lambs and pigeons dying for over a thousand years was never enough. It was never enough. Hebrews 10.4 reminds us of this. The writer of Hebrews He says this, he says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. So again and again, as people are sacrificing, and year after year, the the high priest goes into the most holy place and he sprinkles blood on the mercy seat, the atonement cover for the for the sins of the people that they might be forgiven year after year for over a thousand years. And we learn, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This was never enough. But, praise be to God, because he knew a greater tabernacle was to come. Instead of dwelling in an ark where sacrificial blood is sprinkled, God comes years, decades, centuries down the road. He comes to dwell in a man whose sacrificial blood will be shed, not sprinkled. John 1.14 tells it like this, and the word became flesh and dwelt. And that word dwelt literally means tabernacled. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is our atonement. Jesus is our mercy seat. He stands between God, the Holy One, and the sinner. Hebrews 9, 11 through, I'll just read it to you. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, speaking of the tabernacle, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. So all the sins committed under the first covenant, Christ brings this new covenant and he redeems them. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And he goes on and then he says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For Christ has not has entered not into the holy places made with hand, where are, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly for over a thousand years as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, as it is, talking of Christ, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Here is the takeaway from this profound section of God's word. Two tabernacles. One that was never enough. And one that did it all. No longer, brothers and sisters, there is no veil. There is no barrier between God and us. That veil was torn in two from top to bottom as Jesus died on the cross by his life and his suffering and his shed blood and his death and his resurrection. He now stands between God and us, declaring us innocent. Now, if we sin, and we do, 1 John 1, 9 tells us, That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But but don't don't miss this. When, When we sin today, a sacrifice is still needed. Jesus had to shed his blood even for the sins we commit today. But he doesn't have to do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. He doesn't have to do it for over a thousand years. He did it once for all. And wonderfully, Hebrews 4 speaks a better word to us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So this is, this is what Christ has done. We don't have a most holy place we have to walk into. We can now walk into the throne room of God with confidence. We can now stand before God covered in the righteousness of Christ. We can now stand before God. And he says, let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. You see, in the Old Testament and in in the most holy place, God 
was enthroned upon the cherubim. He, he dwelled above the cherubim. Psalm 81, you can, you can read it, where God is enthroned upon the cherubim. But only the high priest could enter, enter once a year. And he had to make a, a sacrifice of blood for his own sins before he would even be allowed to enter. We don't. Let us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace for help in time of need so we can be the worshipers that God has created us to be that we might glorify his name. Jesus, I think, in a beautiful way, encapsulizes all of this in Matthew 11. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No blood, no goats, no lambs. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Father, thank you that you tabernacle among us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we are, for those of us who have put our faith in your Son, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in all our weaknesses and who has made a way for us to draw near to you. Lord, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. Lord, and for those who are here today who might not know you, we pray that you would draw them near, that they might experience the forgiveness of sins and the grace of God in Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.